Thank you for those songs. Perfect, just perfect. Music touches me deeply, way down in the depths of my soul. And with what I've been sharing this week, with what I've been endeavoring to bring forth from the scripture through the Holy Spirit, that song that they just sang just captured that all the way through the, the title this evening's Captivated by the Cross. The title tomorrow morning's Captivated by the Resurrection. And this title for Sunday afternoon is Captivated by His Bride. And it just, that song just touched on all of those. And so I could have just sat there and turned into a sobby mess. But I have to get up here and speak. What words come to your mind when you think about God? If someone came in here and they said, so you people, you claim to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. You gather together to worship him. You sing to him. What's he like? How would you describe him? Let's just throw some words out. What words come to your mind? God is love. God is love. Faithful. Faithful. Gracious. Gracious. Just. Just. Omnipotent. Omnipotent. Long suffering. Those words go very well with what we're going to share. In fact, they go perfectly with what I'm going to share tonight. I would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. As I said earlier, the theme this week, the word is captivated. The theme verse, which I'm not sure if I actually read last night, Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so when we think about words that come to our mind when we describe God, I guess I wonder, because all those words that we heard just shared just now were very good, positive, encouraging kind of words, but I'm wondering is there anyone here who would have words that are not so nice as you stop and think about God? And you know what? When I ask you the question about what words you would use to describe God, there's not right or wrong answers. It's what you think of when you think about God. That is your answer. And if you think tonight that you don't think so positively of God, you may be right in line with Jeremiah, who said, you are a deceiver, <laughs> and you have deceived me. I mean, how's that going to work in prayer meeting? Brother Bob's praying, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the joy you bring to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. And then Brother Joe says, you're a liar. <laughs> Hey, we don't do that here. 
there are difficulties in following God and what he calls us to at times. And there are things that are very hard to understand, even in his word. But we're going to look at something here that describes, it doesn't describe, it, it is God's describing himself to us. And so we have a request from Moses. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 of Exodus 33. And Moses was basically asking God to show him that he is with him. He said, I just, I want to see you. I want to experience your presence. And so his request to God was, show me who you are. And, and so in verse 16, he, in Exodus 33, verse 16, he says, please show me your glory. And then he said, and this is God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, does that remind you of an old hymn? I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so that was the introduction. God is just saying, I'm going to show you my glory. Get ready. And so let's jump into chapter 34 and see what happened. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone, like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I, I kind of like the He threw that in there, which you broke. I know you remember that, but I'm pointing that out. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. And so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And then Moses rose up early in the morning, and he went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression, and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what happens when we see God in even just a glimpse of who he is? Moses made haste, I like that. He made haste and bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, 
Let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take away your and take us as your inheritance. I'm going to stop reading right there. Let's look back at verse eight. The words that God used to describe Himself: gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. I did a sermon series titled God Is. And what I really wanted to get across and what I want to take a moment to do right now is to think about what it means when it says God is. You know, in, in almost every other scenario on earth, we, we would say, and, and our brother back here said God is love. We don't we might refer to someone else and say they are loving, but we don't say they are love. Well, God is, God is love. He is the source of love. He is the essence of love. He is the standard by which we know love. And really that applies to every one of these descriptions. When we think about patience and goodness, in truth, we say God is good. He is the standard by which we know good. There is no other standard that we have to go by. And we often compare ourselves among ourselves on this earth, but God is good. And what I, what I want you to think about is two words, and I'm sure you're familiar with them, when we think about objective truth and subjective truth. And so... Subjective truth would be, for example, this morning, it was dumping down the rain. And you would say, how's that subjective truth? It was raining. There's no question. But here's the deal. My, my daughter would say, it is a perfect day to get married. Because my daughter wants to get married in the rain. I don't know where that came from. Probably her mother, I guess. It's a little bit odd, right? But I'll blame it on her. But that idea of getting married in the rain, saying it's a perfect day to get, to get married, someone else would say, it's a horrible day. See, it's subjective. What's true is that it's raining. That's the objective truth. It's raining. But someone's view of whether it's a great day to get married or not is subjective. And so when we talk about God and his truth... And, and that's what we hear in the, in the world today. It's like, well, your truth, there's my truth. Like, I can't speak to your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And it's all subjective. God is truth. And our truth pursuit needs to be found in him. He is objective truth. And so I'm, wanting, I'm asking you to, to think about that and apply that to these words but here's what I want to highlight just for a second. He said these words in the end of the verses that we read there in verse 6 and 7. He said, by no means clearing the guilty, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. I want us to just stop and think about that. Was, was God overlooking sin? 
Was God saying, you know what, you all sinned, but I'm just going to kind of turn a, a blind eye to it, and I'm not going to pay attention to it, and I'm just going to overlook it? You know, I think that honestly we could probably take this two ways. We, we could probably understand that he, is, he has forgiven people. He has forwarded their sins to the cross. But I also believe that he could be, he's, he's promising a future, is what I believe that he is saying here, for these people, for those who are living by what he gave them to live by. And, and the reason that I would say that I'm kind of highlighting this is because I want to, wor- to look at the word just. And Kev, uh, not Kevin, um, Kenton, slowly but surely I'm getting your names. Kenton said God is just. And it's important to know and understand that and what it means, that God is just. God is just. He is the essence. He is the source. There is no other standard by which we can go by. And, and so coming back to this, I, I want to support these verses by just pointing out Romans 5.5 5 that says, through one man's offense, sin came to all men. Through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And I want to point out Hebrews 11 The law and the sacrifices were a shadow of things to come. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away our sins. And so, when I see this verse by no means clearing the guilty, I do not believe that God turned a blind eye to their sin and said, we don't don't even need to worry about that. He does worry about it. And so let's look at the word just for a second. Every one of us likes to be treated fairly. And when I was about 17, 18, towards my last years of school, on the last day of school, we always had a picnic up at the uh, Springs Folks Festival building at the end of school. And so... People had already moved up there, and so the building, the school building itself was mainly empty, and so a bunch of young men went into the high school, and they flipped over the tables, and they turned over the chairs, and they made a big mess of things. I was not part of that. Just pointing that out. Later, and our school had students from many different churches and backgrounds, And so later, one of the fathers of one of the boys found out, discovered what had happened. And he came down to where we were, standing down at the spring store, and he said, all right, every one of you get up there and clean up what you did. And most of us didn't know him, and so many of us were kind of scared of him, and and the ones that messed up the tables, they slowly ventured back up that way, but me, no. I didn't mess it up. I'm not going up there, I'm not going up there to clean it up. And at some point he realized I was still sitting there. 
meet another guy, and he said, did you not hear what I said? And I said, I did not mess it up. I had nothing to do with it. I'm not going to clean it up. And he said, let me tell you, boy, I was not raised like you. Uncle Sam raised me. Later, I told my friend in my ignorance, he probably doesn't even have an Uncle Sam. <laughs> Eventually, I, I moved up there, and by the time I got up there, it was pretty much cleaned up. And I did call him later, and I apologized, because I felt very bad about what had happened, about my attitude. But in that moment, <laughs> I wanted to be treated fairly. I did not mess it up. I should not have to go up there and clean it up. I wanted a just decision. And just means to be equitable, right, or fair. Justice means right treatment, or to set right, rightness. And so in Deuteronomy 32.4, it says this, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. And in Psalm 89.14, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. God is just, and we understand it by knowing that we want to be treated fairly. When we order 15 tons of gravel, and we pay for 15 tons of gravel, we want to get 15 tons of gravel. When you stop at the yard sale, and you buy a used lawnmower that they tell you this lawnmower runs, when you get home, it better run. You want it to run. You want to be treated fairly. It's just how it works. When you order something from Amazon and you pay for it, it's got to show up. Or if it doesn't, you pursue what it takes to let them know. You did not receive it. What you paid for, you did not receive. So the word just is kind of a, sort of a boring word, if you will, when you think about God. It's, it's um, not quite the draw, the warmth of love that we think about. And, but when we start to think about justice, it can start to raise the feelings a little bit within us. When, when we start to think about, you see an older child rip something out of the hands of a younger child, you know, much bigger, much smaller, you don't like to see that. You suddenly, you, you are rooting for, if you will, that smaller child. You feel protective for that smaller child. And that sense of justice wants to come out within us. When I was uh, 16, well, probably younger, probably 13, uh, we would always have a Bible school picnic at the end of our uh, Bible school, and I was in a city mission church, and so these kids were were not all very well behaved. And so at this Bible school picnic, 
I was up there, it was on Dan's Mountain, and they have all these huge tractor tires set around for the kids to climb on. And they're close together. Some are standing up, some are laying down. It's just like a maze in there. You could get all the way in there and not really be seen. And I was on top of a big, tall payloader tire, and I heard something, and I looked down, and really it was just three of us up there. Everybody else was down at the picnic tables. And there was a young girl down in there and two young men. And they were, they were stepping in towards her, and she was somewhat trapped in there. And she didn't really have a way out. And I didn't like what was happening, and I didn't really know what was happening. But I knew that the sense of justice was coming out in me. And, and so, like a knight in shining armor, they had no idea I was there until all of a sudden, whop, from the sky. I landed right in front of them with her behind me. And you know what? It turned into a little bit of a shoving match, and I don't really remember the end of the story, honestly. Um, I think that I got somewhat in trouble for that. But it was just its the sense of justice that comes out. It's what you feel when you, when you watch a video, and it shows just some harmless, loving grandmother walking down the street and, and some thug comes up and whacks her over the head and knocks her down and rips her purse out of her hand and starts digging through it and throws it down and they walk off. Like, that's just wrong. And you feel that sense of justice. It's something that we... we don't know exactly how to deal with because we're... We're Anabaptists. We're non-resistant. And so we've, we probably, when we think about God and, and justice, uh, we, we know that, the, that his word says that I, justice is mine, I will repay. And so we trust in that, but we maybe sometimes don't allow ourselves to feel that as much as we should. And so as we think about God tonight, and the fact that he is just, he is the standard of justice, and we hear these scenarios, and you can connect with that, but then stop and think about the fact that you are comparing yourself among yourself. When you start thinking about your own life, and what you, what you see as right and wrong, you are comparing yourselves among yourselves, and what... I want us to do tonight is to compare ourselves and where we stand to God himself, the source, the essence, and realize that when we have us as a sinner and God as a just God and God as a loving God, we got a dilemma. We got a problem. And so I'm inviting you to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. And I'm going to read seven verses. And I'm just going to call this the bright spotlight of God's holiness. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. When we think of the story of David, a 
man after God's own heart. It's stunning what he really did when we stop and think about the choices that he made. It started out, he is a king who should have been out with his men, but he was not. He made a decision. He was tired, and that's oftentimes where poor decisions are made. He's tired. He's weary. I'm just going to stay home and let them handle it. And so they went out. And you know the story well. He saw a woman who was not his to have, but because he was king and because of what he could do, he called her in and he took her to himself, got her pregnant, and then he doesn't know what to do. So he tries to, to have her husband come home and, and so that he will spend time with his wife so that we'll try to cover this up and hide it. And his, his man is so faithful, he won't, even, he won't even go home. He stays there by the king's gate. And so finally he resorts to, I'm going to send him out. And he hands him a letter. <laughs> Think about this. He hands him a letter to carry to the commanding officer on the field that says, put me in the most dangerous part of this battle. I mean, low down. Just low down. And he's killed. And that's what happens. And God is about to turn the bright spotlight of his holiness directly on David's life. And let's read 1 Samuel 12 the first seven verses. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him, just a family pet. Just everybody loved the little lamb. Sure, it had a name, ran around in the yard with his kids, just a family pet. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. This was David's justice. I don't know how it happened next, but I, in my mind, I just, I just see Nathan just letting the silence sit. And at some point, I wonder if David didn't start to say, It's me. That was me. Nathan said, you are the man. You are that man. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what, David was already on the right track. I have sinned against the Lord. You know, we come to God often in two ways. When we think about ourselves and we think about our life. One of those ways is thinking that you've sinned so badly that there's no way. God can forgive you. And I recently sat in a circle of men and one man shared, and he said, look, I've been in the military. And he said, I, I've killed over 300 men. He said, I, God can, the Bible says that we should not kill. He said, God cannot forgive me. I, I just, I don't see how he can forgive me. And so he is sitting there from that perspective of saying God's grace and God's forgiveness isn't big enough. And he still hasn't moved past that. He's still stuck in that. He's still struggling along. He, he can't move past that. The second way I think that we can come to God is thinking you know what, I've grown up in a good Christian home. I've been, I've been taught what's right. I've been taught the ways of God. I've actually followed them pretty well. And really, I'm not that bad of a person. God would say to you, and Jesus said it, I did not come to save the righteous. If we take that verse just all by itself, we'd say, oh, what, did Jesus not come for everyone? No, he was saying, I came for, to those who will receive me, to those who will see that they have sinned, that they have fallen short, that they are lost without me. And if those two ways are not where you stand, there is a third way. There is a third way. And so as we think about the bright spotlight of God's holiness and 
as it's shown on David's life. Well, let's look at your life. Let's take the bright spotlight of God's holiness and turn it around on your life. You know, there was a time when my dad was in a recovery center for quite a long time, and I went down there one evening, and uh, we were we were down there a lot, and just before I went down to see him, uh, I just kind of did a brief check on my pants, and I'm like, yeah, they're, they're clean, they're good. And uh, I went down there and, and walked in and sat down, and the next thing you know, when I looked down under the bright spotlight I was sitting under, I'm like, these pants are filthy. Like, I could see stains in them, and it's not a reflection of my wife's laundering ability. Um, they're just older pants. And, uh, but once under that bright spotlight, you could start to see the stains that were there. And really, we have to, as God's people, to fully understand who he is and the gift that he has given us. We have to understand where we stand, knowledge of ourself. And so when the illuminating word of God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, where does that put you? When the illuminating word of God tells us that compared to him, our righteousness, not your sins, but your righteousness, looks like a white towel that you have just wiped up the oil stains from the garage floor with. That's your righteousness before God. Filthy rags. When the illuminating word of God says we were lost and without hope in the world. That's where we stand. When the illuminating word of God says we were lost and without hope. I'm sorry, I read that. You still, if you're still not convinced, let's put all of your thoughts and, and actions on the big screen up here from the last week. Any takers? We just have the big screen and, and we'll just decide we're going to pick one of you. And, and, and the, all the, your thoughts and, and actions and the way that you spoke to the people around you are all going to be up there for all of us to see. And suddenly you, you want to start slinking down and slide under the bench a little bit. I wouldn't be excited about that at all. Not at all. The third option is to place ourselves in the hands of a just God and a loving God and a holy God. And what happens when we do that? What does a God who is just, who cannot overlook sin, a God who demands justice, a God who is love, he is just and he is love, and here we are a sinner. What does a God like that do? He comes up with the greatest plan in the world. He says, you know what? 
I'm going to go down there myself in the form of my son Jesus. And I'm going to let him live a righteous life, a perfect life. And I'm going to let them beat him. I'm going to let them spit on him. I'm going to let them slap him. I'm going to let them whip him until the skin is ripped open on his back. I'm going to let them put him on a cross. I'm going to let them drive nails through his hands and his feet. I'm going to let them lift up that cross and slam it in the ground and just let him hang there until he dies. I'm going to pour all of my justice out on my son. The justice that covers our sins. And it is by this that we know love. It is by this standard that we understand who we are and who he is in Christ. And so Romans 3.26 says this, he is, he is just and the justifier. In 1 John 1, 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Imagine yourself being at the cross. Your sense of justice comes out because you know that Jesus lived a perfect life. Just a, he, he was good to everyone he met. And there they are, mocking him, spitting on him, making fun of him, getting ready to pound the nails through his hands. And you see that soldier hold that, old, that nail up there, and he's got that hammer, and he whips it back. And your sense of justice kicks in. And so you run up there, and you grab him on the shoulder, and you spin him around. And you're looking right into your very own face. Because you and I put him there. God poured out his justice for you on his son. He poured out his justice on all those who lived faithfully before the cross. He poured it out on his son. And it is through this that we can have peace. It is through this that we can prepare to meet God. To enter heaven, which could be tonight. Could be before you get home. And you might see what Isaiah saw. As you enter heaven and you look down a long hallway... And you see this room with the, some doors there. And there's, it's a bright light. And there are creatures moving around that you don't even necessarily recognize what they are. And they're just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And there's smoke rolling out of there. And as all the jokes start out with St. Peter meeting you at the gates of heaven, I'll just go with that. St. Peter saying, go meet your God. 
and you start walking down that hallway closer and closer to the just judge and the bright lights of his holiness are getting brighter and brighter and brighter and you don't necessarily want to go in there. But all of a sudden, somebody comes alongside of you and slips their arm around you and you look up into the face of Jesus. The warmest, warmest feeling you could possibly experience. You look into his eyes and he says, let's go meet my father. And you walk into that room. Fear is gone because you're with Jesus. You've, you've accepted the gift here on this earth. You've, you've been given the freedom to walk in there with peace in your heart. And you walk in that room, and I don't know what that'll be like, but I imagine, just like Moses, we'll hit our knees, and Jesus says, here's Ron. He's one of us. He's ours. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Welcome home where you belong. That's the, that's the promise. That's the hope. Please don't get too hung up in, in that description. Those, those words that Isaiah wrote, They left him saying, woe is me, I am undone. There's just no way, he said, that I can stand before God. When we understand God's justice, what, what, what an idea for him to come up with. What incredible love. And so as, as we sang that song tonight, as Tim and Sam sang that song tonight, what, what connected with you in here? And to think that there's so many people out there who don't understand that, who, who don't get it. But quite possibly there's people sitting here who don't get it. But I'm telling you that it's not too late. It can happen right here and right now. And I would just give you the opportunity. I'm not, I'm not one that wants to play on your emotions. Emotions are a part of it. But I want you, if you just know, if you just know right now that you need to take that step to recommit your life to the Lord, or if you've not made that commitment, now is the time you can be given sonship 
the beauty of sonship tonight. And so I'm just going to take a minute here and give you some time to think about that. And I just believe that if now is the time for you, I would ask you to come right up here and kneel at this step and meet the one who changes everything. I will not ever forget that day when that happened for me. I was a Christian from a young age, but it went from knowledge to my heart with what God showed me in one afternoon. And I cried for hours because I realized I'd been living my life like a fool in what I was trying to find my value in. I had replaced the gift of the cross with other things. And I was chasing them hard. And it broke my heart. And there's a verse in Hebrews that says that we, when we've experienced this, and then we cast it away, we are simply casting the Son of God underfoot, like a piece of rubbish to lay along the road and, and get run over and every time a car goes by. So I just, I'm going to give this a little time of silence, Let's bow our heads, and I'll just give you opportunity to come forward.